Um, well, I'd like to welcome you all to what I, I hope will be a, an interesting and uh, productive mini-conference on uh, religious testimony. I'd of course like to thank uh, the John Templeton Foundation for funding this project in general and this <coughs> workshop uh, in particular. Um, in case you don't know, there'll, there'll be lunch provided today, but tomorrow uh, it'll be sort of uh, a do-it-yourself lunch. I mean, there are quite a few cafes uh, nearby, and uh, people can direct you if you don't know, if you're an outsider and don't know where to go. Um, and I think roughly the format each day will be after the conference, there'll be drinks somewhere, and there'll be an ad where there'll be drinks, and then it's 7.30 dinner. Each day, who's? It's a seven tomorrow. Seven. Seven tomorrow, but it's on the oh, program. Oh, seven tomorrow. And who who is it? Who is it? Is it being paid for? Just so we. And um, we definitely on the workshop the uh, people commentating speaking. Uh, yeah. So all the workshop participants are definitely paid for. I mean, if we can subsidize a bit more, we will. Though there are no promises. Uh, other people, they're welcome. Absolutely welcome to come. Yeah, they're welcome to come. Uh, and there'll definitely be space, or should should they let you know? Let me know if you want to come, and I'll, I'll keep track of it. Okay, so let Billy know if you, if you're not sort of as it were centrally involved with the project, but would uh, like to definitely like to come to dinner. Um, I think we've tried to format this so to orient things towards discussion rather than sitting and listening uh, to, to talks. So there's only going to be two talks, and then uh, for the rest for the rest, it will be uh, a matter of some brief remarks by a commentator and then open discussion. Uh, there'll be, I suppose, a normal question, follow-up sort of format. And I instruct the uh, chairs to sort of shut things down if one particular exchange is going on and on and on because that can be continued outside the format of the public forum as it were. Um, <coughs> any, anything else Billy? Oh yes, there are two forums coming around uh, to give us permission for the podcast to, 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 to record you for podcast purposes so we'd really appreciate it if, you, if you'd sign them. Uh, anything else? <coughs> okay, well, uh, let's um, move right ahead and start with, uh, is it, with Matt commenting on uh, Rachel Fraser's talk. All right, great. Um, everyone's got a handout, just to... Excellent. Okay, so, um, so I'm going to start just by summarizing Rachel's paper. Um, so, okay, so Rachel starts out by suggesting that some religious authors, um, for instance, the anonymous author of The Cloud of Unknowing, uh, have held that people who fail to uh, in some way have their emotional dispositions transformed by divine grace or something like that, um, those people are incapable of arriving at religious knowledge um, and that t religious testimony should be withheld from them. So Rachel dubs this thought epistemic Calvinism. EC um, for short. Okay, so R Rachel suggests that the EC has something of an analogue in moral epistemology, um, namely moral testimony pessimism, uh, which I'll just refer to as pessimism. 
Um, and uh, according to pessimism, um, there's something wrong with a, ma a mature moral agent relying upon testimony uh, for her moral beliefs, even if she knows the testifier to be reliable. Um, so, so here's the, the kind of initial puzzle that Rachel confronts. Um, why would the subject matter of the proposition asserted by a reliable testifier um, make any difference to whether the hearer thereby comes to know uh, the, the propositions asserted? So to start with, Rachel goes on to explore the following line of uh, inquiry. That if we can explain the intuitive appeal of pessimism, then perhaps we can uh, sort of use the template, uh, the explanation we come up with as a as a template for generating a, a sort of analogous explanation for EC. All right. So so Rachel can uh, spend some time considering Alison Hill's view um, that that pessimism is explained basically by the importance for the moral life of moral understanding, um, in particular understanding why uh, actions are right or wrong. Um, and the thought is that, um, well, understanding is it's in a number of respects a bit like know-how, um, and it sort of uh, in some way resides in a person's cognitive abilities. It's, it's not the kind of thing that's apt to be transmitted by testimony, um, unlike moral knowledge. Um, so, so Hills thinks that, for one thing, reliably doing what is right requires the kind of systematic grasp of uh, moral reasons um, uh, that that you know that uh, moral understanding involves. So, um, so given that, um, given that moral knowledge uh, isn't sufficient for um, for reliably doing what's right. Um, uh, and given that the thing that is is required for that uh, is not apt to be transmitted via testimony, um, you, you have a kind of story to tell about why, uh, you know, why there's something dubious about reliance upon moral testimony. Okay, so Rachel goes on to present some uh, some criticisms of Hill's argument, um, essentially seeking to undermine the, the alleged asymmetry um, that Hill's claims there is between moral testimony and non-moral testimony. So Rachel sets that sets to one side um, the uh, the project of of trying to uh, sort of use a, an explanation, this kind of explanation of pessimism, to explain epistemic Calvinism. So instead, she she goes on to explore a different line of thought that that what accounts for epistemic Calvinism <clears throat> is the failure of those who are not engaged in the religious life and who who aren't having their moral uh, sorry their emotional dispositions transformed. Um, is that it's the failure of, of those people to actually grasp uh, certain concepts that figure in religious propositions that explains their inability to gain um, religious knowledge by way of testimony. Um, so Rachel proposes that this story could work given a, a kind of emotionist semantics. Um, so she sort of offers a, a toy emotionist semantics according to which um, S grasps... Um, a religious term T only if S is disposed to feel that X is T just in case X is T. Um, and so given this sort of emotionist semantics for religious terms, um, an alteration of someone's emotional dispositions might make a difference to which religious propositions she's capable of grasping and hence capable of knowing, um, and hence uh, epistemic Calvinism. So um, Rachel goes on 
than to suggest that a similar story might be told about why we have uh, pessimist intuitions, um, why we intuitively feel somehow that, that reliance upon moral testimony is less than ideal. Um, and she notes that, the, that much moral philosophy presupposes that the following is true. Um, she labels it this disp, um, should be on your handout. Uh, if A is disposed to feel that X is wrong when she believes X is wrong, um, she is disposed to feel that X is wrong when she entertains the proposition that X is wrong. Um, so Rachel contends that given disp um, and a kind of emotionist semantics about moral terms, um, Prince semantics, um, one can tell a, a story about why uh, pessimism about moral testimony is intuitively appealing. And, and the story goes something like this. Um, given, given the conjunction of uh, emotionist semantics about moral terms and this, um, for an agent A to acquire a testimony-based belief that X is wrong, um, A must, one, uh, not already have the belief that X is wrong, Two, uh, be disposed to feel that X is wrong upon entertaining the proposition that X is wrong. Three, have that disposition um, be finked or masked, in other words, fail to uh, manifest on an occasion on which a speaker testifies uh, to her that X is wrong. And four, uh, she must trust the speaker's testimony, that's to say, base her belief that X is wrong upon that testimony. All right, so Rachel contends that that pessimist intuitions are tracking the fact that, uh, despite that a belief formed in this manner could amount to knowledge sometimes, there would nonetheless be something epistemically defective about it. Um, so uh, it seems to me like th this kind of somewhat parallels um, Maria Lasonanio's account of defeat, where she basically wants to say um, there are some cases in which a subject uses a, a safe method and, and then subsequently gets presented uh, with an undercutting defeater and yet uh, she, she, Maria thinks that those people can sometimes hang on to knowledge if, if the method was safe in the first place but she proposes that there's this other feature that the intuitions are tracking um, which she calls reasonableness uh, which has something to do with the subject whether the subject's using a sort of belief forming policy that in general, is likely to yield. Um, so I think you know Rachel's account is sort of structurally parallel to that. Uh, so okay, um, a few thoughts then. <coughs> so um, I think Rachel presents a really compelling um, way of accounting for um, pessimist intuitions. Um, and so I think uh, to begin with, I'd like to sort of. Um, I'd like to hint at an alternative suggestion about what might be going on in the religious uh, case. Um, in, so I want to suggest an alternative story that, um, about what might be going on in the thinking of religious figures who claim that religious testimony should be withheld from certain audiences. Um, so the thought is that um, you know, a, a person who's not undergone, undergone this kind of divinely orchestrated transformation of her emotional dispositions uh, is incapable of having acquaintance knowledge uh, of the object of religious devotion, uh, namely God, I guess. Um, so, um, and the, although it, it, it's perhaps possible um, still for a person who's not acquainted with God to acquire some propositional knowledge about God via testimony, um, it's worthless perhaps for, for someone to know propositions about God whilst failing to be acquainted with God. 
I mean, that, so that's one thought about what might be going on with people like the, the author of The Cloud um, <coughs> counseling his readers not to share the book's contents, except with those who are followers of Christ, uh, right? So you might be thinking only those who follow Christ have acquaintance knowledge of Christ, uh, that only those who follow Christ have had their emotional dispositions transformed in such a way that they get to have that acquaintance knowledge. Um, and you know, although may, perhaps others may be able to grasp some of the propositions, um, some of the religious propositions that were important to them, uh, only uh, for people acquainted with Christ is it a good thing to receive testimony concerning such propositions. So how this alternative story could work, well, um, if a person fails to be acquainted with an object X, it's, it still may be possible for her to grasp and come to know some propositions about X, uh, so long as she's able to refer to, to X um, using some salient description that uniquely identifies X. So someone who lacks acquaintance knowledge of God might still be able to grasp and come to know a proposition such as the creator of the universe is very powerful and thereby come to know a proposition about God uh, even whilst lacking any acquaintance knowledge with God. Uh, so as to why lacking certain emotional dispositions would present, prevent someone from having acquaintance knowledge of God. Um, well, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of line of thought in the philosophy of emotion according to, which the, uh, according to which emotions are partly what acquaint us with persons in something analogous to the way that visual perceptions acquaint us with, say, colours. Um, so that, that would be why a failure to have one's effective dis disposition sort of reformed by divine grace uh, would prevent one from having acquaintance knowledge with God. So, okay, so, um, all right, so then um, a, a kind of uh, a thought about Rachel's engagement with Hill's uh, account of um, moral pessimism. So, so um, in arguing for the claim that, um, that moral testimony is somehow, or that reliance upon moral testimony is somehow less acceptable than reliance upon non-moral testimony, um, Hill seems to invoke something like the following thought. Um, that So if an agent has to rely on uh, testimony to discover that it's morally right to fight in circumstances C for a reason R, then if left to her own devices, as she often will be, um, the agent might easily be mistaken about what it's right to do or about why it's right to do what it's right to do um, in distinct but similar circumstances. Now, Rachel rightly points out that it's also true that uh, if an agent has to rely upon testimony to discover whether the circumstance C in fact obtains, so for instance, whether uh, the animal she's considering, considering eating can feel pain or whether the, the uh, human being on the ventilator is any longer capable of self-awareness, which are presumably non-moral questions, uh, then again, left to, the, left to her own devices, the agent could easily be mistaken about what it's right to do. So Ra Rachel contends that uh, reliably doing what's right also requires a kind of systematic grasp of non-moral facts of a sort that's not very easily transmitted via testimony. Um, so, I mean, I wonder, though, it seems like the, the following move is, is still open to Hills, and, and in fact, I, I, it seems like she may make this move in the paper, um, namely to claim that, well, for an agent to reliably do what's right is compatible with occasional reliance and, or de deference to expert testimony, but only if the agent's competent at identifying who the relevant experts are. Um, and she might hold that, you know, um, 
most human agents are, and perhaps just as a matter of contingent fact, or perhaps necessarily, um, you know, a lot worse, um, or if not completely incapable of identifying the relevant moral experts, whereas um, most, most human agents are pretty competent at identifying uh, the relevant experts concerning the question of whether a given circumstance C does in fact obtain, so for whether uh, the animal that she's intending to eat can feel pain and so on. So in that sense, um, it seems like there may still be some asymmetry left um, after Rachel's criticisms go through. Um, so, um, okay, so finally, um, so as I said, I, Rachel, Rachel seems to be uh, purporting uh, to offer an account that it can identify the feature of moral testimony that pessimist intuitions are tracking, um, and yet do so without conceding that testimony-based moral beliefs never amount to knowledge. Um, so Rachel contends that a case of which one through four are true, so uh, on the middle of your handout, um, uh, so she contends that a case of which one through four are true would exemplify some kind of epistemic defect, though a defect that's nonetheless compatible with knowledge. So I guess my final question for Rachel is um, just in what does that defect consist? Um, so it seems like it, it's not plausibly going to be modal reliability or safety. Um, I mean, for why, well, for one thing, I mean, it seems too plausible that um, an absence of modal reliability is not compatible with knowledge. Um, uh, so, so, you, so appealing to, to safety won't work because um, a case where the belief is unsafe just won't be a case of knowledge, and that's not. And Rachel doesn't want to say that, that such cases never get to be knowledge. Um, but for another thing, it se also it seems possible that... Um, one through four all be true in a given case, and yet the testimonially based belief uh, be safe. That's the same. It seems possible that, that someone relies on testimony and they have this, uh, this emotional disposition fail to manifest. Um, and yet, they, um, for whatever reason, uh, they wouldn't easily have relied upon a testifier who was uh, unreliable. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so, so safety or modal reliability, I don't think, can be uh, the thing in which the defect that, that Rachel's interested in consists. Okay, so, so here's another thought. Um, could it have to do with some kind of virtue-theoretic property? So one thought might be that the defect in question consists in the way that a case uh, of which one through four are true would fail to be um, a cognitive achievement. So... Um, so that's to say the agent's true belief in such a case would fail to manifest the relevant cognitive ability, uh, the ability in question being uh, the emotional disposition to feel that X is wrong just in case X is wrong. So, of course, to make this thought work, um, Rachel's going to have to want to claim that uh, cognitive achievement, um, or at any rate... Um, a sort of degree of cognitive achievement that's missing here um, isn't necessary for knowledge, but that it is nonetheless the thing that pessimist intuitions are tracking. Um, and what's more, it seems like if, if this thought's going to explain why moral testimony in particular um, is supposed to be dubious, and not just testimony in general, um, it would need to be shown that testimonially-based moral beliefs are especially deficient as regards this sort of virtue-theoretic property as compared with uh, testimonially based non-moral beliefs um, and you might think that's not obvious or at least some people have argued that 
Um, you know, uh, most it looks like most testimony cases um, are at the best, at the very best, sort of weak cognitive achievements. Um, okay, so that's pretty much all I have to say. Um, okay, so first I'd like to thank Max for his comments, and I'm going to try and respond to each of them in turn, roughly speaking. So. Max starts off by wondering whether the notion of acquaintance or objectual knowledge might be involved in explaining the keenness of certain medieval mystics to guard against the wrong sort of people getting a hold of their testimony. And uh, like, I don't want to sit here and be like, that's ridiculous, and insist that I happen to have hit on the only possible way to explain this, right? Um, and I'm also very aware that we've only had a sketch of how one might go about telling Max's suggested story for obvious reasons. Um, so I'm not going to worry about any of the details, um, it would sort of be weird to expect them all to be laid out, but I am a bit worried about how we might motivate the claim that propositional knowledge of God is worthless without objectual knowledge. Um, so here's thing, one thing we might say to motivate this sort of claim. Um, it's a familiar enough thought that if we buy into a Russellian picture of propositions, two people might know exactly the same proposition, but under different guises. And it's a similarly familiar thought that I might find myself in certain contexts in which there's some proposition P, and my practical interests are such that it would be really great for me to know P under one guise, but much less useful for me to know it under another. So we might then say the following. There are no propositions which are such that you need objectual knowledge of God in order to know them, but it is the case that you need objectual knowledge of God to know the propositions under like the religiously significant sort of guise. Um, and you know, that we can need certain kinds of objectual knowledge to know propositions under certain particularly useful guises seems to be true. So I might point to something that none of you can see and say to Max, this is a nice one. You know, and then uh, Max is going to be able to interpret my sentence. You're not going to be able to interpret my sentence because Max has a different sort of acquaintance with the environment. Um, so the trouble with this kind of story is that it's not going to interact in the right sort of way with our testimonial practice for it to look like a good way of explaining the worries these medieval mystics have. Max wants to sketch a theory on which like, the lovely Christians produce a telling and the mean atheists hear it and come to have testimonially based belief and maybe even testimonially based knowledge. But if we individuate propositions in the coarse Russellian fashion that I've been envisaging, then propositions aren't going to end up being important theoretical items in our epistemology of testimony, at least in the bit of the theory that's concerned with transmission. So if I tell you that Hesperus is so-and-so, and you end up believing that phosphorus is so-and-so, this belief of yours isn't going to be testimonially based. Yes, you believe the proposition that I've expressed, but under the wrong sort of guise for it to count as a testimonially based belief. So why does this make trouble for the project of telling Max's story? Well, if there's a systematic difference between the sorts of guises that the lovely Christians can know religious propositions under and the sorts of guises that the mean atheists can know those religious propositions under, it's going to be tricky to maintain that the mean atheists are nevertheless in a position to accept the religious testimony of the lovely, of the lovely Christians. So this is just me being pessimistic about one way we might make plausible the sort of central claim in Max's alternative story that... Uh, objectual or acquaintance knowledge is um, a sort of prerequisite for propositional knowledge of God being an important or significant thing. 
Um, so, the second thing Max does is he points out the following difference between moral pessimism and what I'm calling epistemic Calvinism. So, moral pessimism is more thoroughgoing. It says that there's no one for whom moral testimony is such that it gets them into the right sort of epistemic position with respect to the proposition expressed. So epistemic Calvinism is much more modest. It says that religious testimony only fails to get some people into the right sort of epistemic position. So this difference means that moral pessimism and epistemic Calvinism might look like they're going to be susceptible to different sorts of explanations. And in particular, that any appeal to the centrality of religious understanding would land us with a much more pessimistic view of religious testimony than that which is encoded in epistemic Calvinism. So it's difficult to say anything too substantive about this without having in place some kind of more precise account of understanding that I feel like I've got access to at the moment. But here are some sort of brief thoughts. So suppose I know loads and loads about uh, international politics and somebody comes up to me and tells me, such and such is happening in Iraq, and I believe them. So it's certainly true that I don't come to understand why such and such is going on in Iraq just by accepting their testimony. But there's also an obvious sense in which if I've got the right sort of background knowledge, this testimony is involved in my coming to understand why such and such is going on in Iraq. And it's also obvious that if we have someone who is totally ignorant of international politics and they receive exactly the same testimony, that testimony wouldn't be involved in the same way in their coming to understand why such and such is going on in Iraq. So the upshot of these remarks, I think, is that even if Hills is right about what sort of relationship exists between moral testimony and moral understanding, we shouldn't take Hills's picture as anything like a general template for the relationship between testimony and understanding. So the third thing Max worries about is this. So he thinks that maybe someone who wanted to maintain that there's a relevant asymmetry between moral and non-moral testimony might spell out this sort of line of thought. Uh, as a matter of contingent fact, there is a significant difference between our ability to identify people who are reliable testifiers on non-moral matters and our ability to identify people who are reliable with respect to moral matters. So here's a nebulous worry about like what taking this kind of line might mean for the position of moral pessimism. And the worry is something like, Pursuing this kind of line of thought risks just making moral pessimism like an uninteresting thesis. So let's suppose we can make sense of the thought that moral testimony can give us moral knowledge, but that testimonially based moral knowledge can't ensure we reliably do right because we're not good enough at figuring out who the experts are. Right. So there might be two kinds of reasons that we value or ought to value moral understanding more than moral knowledge. So one is the sort of knowledge that we in fact have access to um, is such that it can't do an important job in our moral lives that moral understanding can do. And the second reason is that no knowledge could do the important job that moral understanding can do in our moral lives. So here's an analogy. Suppose I'm in really, really intense pain and I want to take something to stop it and I'm trying to figure out whether I should want some paracetamol or some morphine. There might be two different reasons for me to prefer the morphine. It might be the case that none of the paracetamol that's, that's available to me is around in such a way that I'm in a position to get a hold of it will be up to the job of sorting out my pain, right? But it's also the case that I might, it might be the case that I should prefer the morphine because it's impossible that any paracetamol, not just the stuff that happens to be available to me in my environment, no matter how good its credentials, could fix the sort of pain I'm suffering from. 
So I think for moral pessimism to tell us something important about moral epistemology, it has to be the case that testimonially based moral knowledge just couldn't do at least some of the jobs that moral understanding does. Not just the case that the rubbishy sort of moral knowledge that we are unlucky enough to have access to can't do the job that moral understanding can. So pushing the line that Max suggests for Hills, I think risks making it look like if we had access to a slightly higher end model of testimonially based moral knowledge, moral knowledge 2.0, if we were getting it in a context where we could figure out who the experts were, um, then it would be able to do everything for us that we want from moral understanding. Right, so now I'm going to talk about the fourth thing Max sort of says. So in the paper, I say that the cases in which we get testimonially based moral beliefs are epistemically defective cases. And Max correctly points out that if we have something like a safety theoretic account of knowledge, these beliefs that we get in the epistemically defective cases might be knowledge constituting. So I think this is exactly right. This isn't something I'm invested in denying. I want to explain why moral pessimism looks right, not argue that it is right. But Max makes this really interesting suggestion. He wonders whether there are some alternative epistemic frameworks that might give us the resources to say something a lot stronger, right? To deny that the testimonially based beliefs in these epistemically defective cases are knowledge constituting. Um, so these aren't pictures that I'm particularly tempted by, but let's see how far pursuing this line of thought might get us. I'm pretty pessimistic. Um, so suppose you're someone who buys into the virtue epistemology type idea that for a belief to count as knowledge, it must count as a cognitive achievement or be the output of the exercise of one's cognitive abilities. Presumably, we wouldn't want our picture of the sort of cognitive achievement required to be so strong as to rule out any testimonially based beliefs from counting as knowledge. But we might think something like this. So if one, A, believes that P on the basis of testimony, and B, could or easily could have come to believe that P by means of the exercise of one's native cognitive abilities, then one fails to know that P. Um, so I think however we un end up understanding this modal condition, it's going to be difficult to make such a story look like the right sort of thing to say. So here's a worry one might have about it. Plausibly. There's a pretty large set of propositions which are such that I don't believe them, but which are entailed by propositions which I do believe. Now, I don't have all that much cognitive energy, right? It's not going to be the case that me or a being endowed with the sort of meagre cognitive endowment that I'm stuck with could come to believe all these propositions by spending my time making competent deductions. But let's suppose we fix our attention on a particular member of this set of propositions and exercising the sort of imagination analytic philosophers are renowned for, call it P. Um, so it will be the case that I could have come to believe just this proposition by exercising my own cognitive capacities. But suppose that instead of competently deducing it from my doxastic store, someone tells me that P, right? So let's make this picture more precise. Let's suppose that what goes on in this. Um, suppose that I embark on the project of competently deducing P from my doxastic store at T1. And let's suppose that my computational capacities are such that we would expect me to have finished competently deducing it by T3. But let's suppose that right before T3, at T2, someone interrupts me and tells me that P. Um, so it seems like they could have easily produced this telling just a few seconds later. And if they hadn't interrupted my like, competent deduction, then I wouldn't have believed that P on the basis of their testimony. I'd have believed it on the basis of my competent deduction. And uh, then I believe P because of the exercise of my na native cognitive capacities. So 
It seems to me that so long as this telling, the telling that interrupts my competent deduction, has all the sorts of features we generally want tellings to have, it seems like this testimonially based belief that I end up with is going to be as good a candidate for knowledge as any other, but it would fall foul of the sort of rough principle that we were entertaining as a way of specifying the virtue epistemologist's story about knowledge as cognitive achievement. Um, so I want to finish just by saying some really brief like methodological type things. So what I take myself to have done in the paper is told a certain sort of story about why moral pessimism might look true even if it isn't. But even if you think the story is a good one, it's not obvious how we should, like post-story, feel about the moral pessimist's intuition, right? We might still think that we're in a position to know that moral pessimism is right and just have it be less likely on our evidence that we know it. So I don't really know how to think about um, what sort of relationship we should think we have in this case between sort of just so stories for our intuitions and the output of our intuitive faculties. Okay, that's me. Okay, um, so hand is a new thread, uh, finger is a follow-up, um, and keep your hands up until I uh, notice you. Uh, Christina first. Okay. Um, so I feel horrible saying this as a medievalist, but I kind of worry that the scope of what you're talking about in the paper, um, you, don't, you don't really have to be talking about religious knowledge or mysticism at all. Um, if you look at EC, uh, and then you, you sort of look at what Max is saying in this first point, I think it's important to note that, and you mentioned this even on the first page, right, that the, what the mystics are worried about isn't that the people who read this aren't going to be capable of understanding, it's that the beliefs of the form on the basis of reading this will be harmful. Right, so you know it'll, it'll they'll have negative value because what they'll get from reading these works will actually mislead them actively. So it's not just that they sort of like won't get comprehension, right? And so it's not just that they'll be, it'll be worthless, like Max has said that you're responding to. And the other thing too is it's it's really only a very narrow um, strain of proclamations that are going to fall under the scope. So, you know, the EC seems like the scope is pretty broad. We talk about it arriving at religious knowledge in general. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, throughout religious tradition, which all straight, but this is all over Islamic philosophy as well, there's this very small kind of, you know, band of sorts of, you know, religious knowledge or testimony that you have to be really careful with. And the other stuff will be fine, right? So I don't know anybody that has serious worries about, you know, sort of leaving books with religious claims lying around for fear of the children, you know, <laughs> or, the, or the apostates. But, but yeah, I mean, it's specifically these kinds of, you know, climate of knowing, these are sort of almost like instruction books for people who are already invested in this project to kind of see, yeah. So I guess it's just a word, so it's, it's kind of a worry about the scope. Mm. That right, like you cast this as a sort of general problem for religious knowledge, and I think it's actually a much, much smaller problem. Yes, so I agree with you that um, <coughs> I definitely agree that even if some religious 
vocabulary is such that you need to have your affective disposition structured in a certain way to understand it. That's going to be like a very small subset of all religious vocabulary. And if I gave the impression that that wasn't the case and I was sort of wanting to make a much like bolder claim about like all of religious vocabulary, then yeah, you seem completely right that this is going to have like an extremely, like it's not going to infect like the majority of religious testimony. Right. I think, certainly. Um, and um, as for like the sort of, so I think what I'm trying to do is not so much like make a historical claim about like what what's, what what picture of their like linguistic practice that these like medieval mystics have. Like I, I'm not scholarly enough to make that kind of suggestion, but it does seem like there's a sort of suggestive puzzle um, that plausibly has like application, like you say to domains other than religious vocabulary, right? So like the moral case, and also cases like slur vocabulary, um, where it seems like there's a kind of sense in which um, it looks like maybe if you don't share people's non-cognitive attitudes towards certain groups, there's a sense in which you can't really come to have like testimonially-based knowledge when they're using slur-type language. Um, so, yeah, I think there's something to be said for sort of trying to make sense of how we might tell a story on which this kind of practice makes sense, even if it's not the sort of story that the people who engaged in it explicitly articulated to themselves. Yeah, no, that seems fair. And I just mostly wanted to point out that I think EC is stated sort of far too broad. Right? So yeah. It's, yeah. Right? And it's likely to mislead people into thinking of your claims about religious testimony in general. Okay, no, that's pretty helpful. And thank you. Like, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's, yeah, no, it's much narrower yeah. than it looks in the paper. Yeah, yeah certainly. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, Laura Bouchard. Um, yeah, thanks. This is super interesting. Uh, I, I have a similar question to Christina. When I read the quotes, they all seem to be saying not just that it was, you know, sort of useless to listen to testimony um, of this type, but, but that it'd be actively bad if it fell into the wrong hands. And so far, I haven't quite seen the explanation either from you or from the like alternative suggestions from the commentator, uh, according to which it would be actively bad. So I was wondering if you had a thought about that and maybe a sort of related thought about whether you do think that it's true for the case of moral testimony, that some moral testimony, it would be actively bad if people with the, if it fell into the hands of the wrong people. Um, so I have a rough, Sort of thought, which goes something like this. So, it seems like in general, um, if you are ignorant with respect to a certain domain, but you don't like perceive yourself as ignorant, you think you're like really, you think you're in a great epistemic position with respect to this domain, that that's kind of bad in a certain respect, right? Like, there's a sense in which, like, ignorance um, an appreciation of your own ignorance can either um, prevent you from acting when it would be inappropriate to act because you're aware you have absolutely no idea what the correct thing to do would be, or it can be a sort of spur to epistemic discovery, right? So it can be, like, an appreciation of your own ignorance can be epistemically valuable, or, you know, Socrates seems to think so. Um, but... So I think there's, I think the sort of story that I think I would want to tell is that um, if you're 
if you're ignorant of God, you shouldn't think you're you should think you're ignorant of God. You shouldn't have like the false impression of understanding him. So I think the so if these people who are like if these people who are mystics, right? actually know loads of important stuff about God and they go around like telling each other it and they come to lots of really important religious knowledge on the basis of each other's testimony but then they're like overheard by the mean atheists and the mean atheists are like I understand that I I have exactly the same I have exactly the same epistemic position as these mystics that seems like bad somehow so that's a really rough thought but it's the one I had I think did you think Okay, short follow up from Christine. Yeah, and then I think even more straightforwardly than that, like in the cloud of unknowing, there's a place where um, where he says, God may well be loved but not be thought. And so you can see where somebody, even if they're already religious, picks this up, looks at it, and is like, oh, so I don't need to try to have any kind of religious knowledge at all. I just have to love things. <laughs> right, and that's exactly what they don't want people, yeah. you know, sort of practically to pick up. Yeah, and, and yeah, there's lots of stuff like that. Sorry, I don't know your name, but okay. sorry. Um, so I have a question for you, Rachel, and for Max. Um, so first, I just have a clarification question about your response um, at the end um, to the virtue theoretic. Um, suggestion. <coughs> so I just didn't really understand it. So okay. it really is just clarificatory. Um, so I take it that the um, the cognitive achievement approach is requiring that in order for um, an instance of true belief or justified true belief to count as knowledge, um, the you know kind of acquisition of the truth, the you know means by which you got the truth or the basis has to be something over which you have you deserve some sort of credit or some sort of achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sounded like you were thinking, like you were giving like a counterexample to that approach. Is that is that the, the way? So you were saying like, look, imagine that I could come to believe this through my own, you know, kind of faculties, but I'm interrupted and I get via you know, testimony. And I guess I just wasn't sure why that's supposed to have more kind of oomph against the um, cognitive achievement achievement view rather than just a standard case of testimony. Because many, many instances of just standard cases of testimony, we could get the information ourselves. I mean, you know, um, I mean, if I come, if I, um, 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 arrive in a new city and I'm looking for somewhere to go, I mean, I could ask someone for their testimony about it, or I could go and just kind of explore it and figure it out on my own. So I certainly have the resources to do that. So I guess I just wasn't sure like what the significance you know, was of the interruption, because many, many just standard cases of testimony, we do have the cognitive you know, capacities to figure, it out, to figure it out on our own. So I, I took it that that was somehow relevant, and I worry that maybe I missed that. So, I mean, I think you're. I think you're definitely right, right? That um, any that the cases of sort of standard like everyday testimonial exchanges are going to cause trouble for the uh, sort of virtue epistemologists kind of notion of cognitive achievement as required for knowledge. But I was trying to think of the sorts of responses that somebody who was trying to defend the virtue epistemology idea might, like the sort of line that they might push, right? And they might say, well, you know, in these standard cases, when you like, when you when you could go and wander around the city or whatever, like, it's a question of 
how easily you could have done that, right? Like, quite how moodily close those worlds where you go wandering around the city are. And they might say, look, you know, they're like far enough away that they don't interfere with, um, they're far enough away that they don't interfere with, with what's going on in the actual world. So the, what I was trying to do with the case of the interruption was get a case in which like, it's definitely a really close <coughs> world in which you end up with a belief with exactly the same content as the testimonially based belief, but um, it's the upshot of your, the exercise of your own cognitive capacities. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, my, my own reading of the cognitive achievement view is that the modal, um, the modal approach is not really going to help them at all, and it's not really what they're interested in, and it's not what they ought to be interested in, because I don't think it has anything to do with how close the, the, nearby, you know, the nearby worlds are in which I could have it could have been the result of my own cognitive achievement, right? I mean, it's it's whether the true you know the true belief that I ha that I do have is in fact a cognitive achievement. So maybe I just maybe I just am not really sure that that's like the best you know kind of gloss we can give on the cognitive achievement view in the first place. So maybe that's maybe the you know. Yeah, so I mean, presumably you could say something like this, right? So if you don't invoke any kind of modal condition when we're talking about the virtue of epistemologist story, then if what you're interested in is maintaining any symmetry between moral testimony and non-moral testimony, you're not going to be able to invoke the virtue epistemologist's story to be able to do that. Whereas if you invoke a modal condition, it looks like you might be able to do something a bit more substantive <coughs> to maintain the asymmetry. So I'm aware that what I'm giving is not like a kind of standard reading of like <coughs> virtue epistemology. Um, but what I'm trying to do is like, look, you know, suppose we find the sort of broad considerations that seem to make like the virtue epistemologist's thought look plausible and we try to like, you know, deploy them to solve this particular puzzle that we've got in this case. What's the most plausible thing we can say? And even if we say what I think is the most plausible thing you can say that's sort of located within that broad worldview, it still doesn't work. Which I think is stronger than saying, look, you know, if we buy into the broad virtue epistemologist's view and sort of harvest standard views available in the literature, none of us, none of them give us the resources to draw the kind of asymmetry that we want to draw. Okay, Laura? Um, yeah, thank you. I really liked this. Um, I, I'm interested in how epistemically defective beliefs formed on moral testimony are because, so it seems to me as though, maybe this is clarificatory to start, um, you weren't giving an error theory. You know, this is why we have these pessimist intuitions, but really we oughtn't to have them, because you end up saying that there is something epistemically defective about police form of moral testimony, which is, sorry. So I say that they're formed in an epistemically defective situation, not that the beliefs okay. themselves are epistemically defective, which I think is an important uh, distinction. Okay. Um, and then you were going on to ask sort of at the end, you know, how epistemically defective is this, how much should we worry? Um, I guess my question then is, if we think something similar is going on in the religious case, mm -hmm. that these there are some you know emotionist dispositions that are getting finked or masked, and then people are forming you know beliefs in an epistemically defective religious beliefs in an epistemically defective yeah. way, is there reason to think that that could be more worrying, less worrying? I mean, if we want to sort of say, you know, we can explain away why we've got pessimist intuitions about moral testimony because there's just something funny going on in belief formation. Um, you know, 
is there reason to think that we can make the same move with respect to religious beliefs? Mm, so, I think there's an important difference with religious testimony. So there's this kind of, um, there's a thought we might have, which is that there's a special, there are some, there are some sentences which are such that whenever we enter, or some propositions which are just, which are such that whenever we entertain them, we're inclined to assent to them, right? And um, you might think that there are some cases in which, so suppose I come to have like a religious belief, right, about God, and God's like, yeah, that's a great religious belief, like everyone should have this. And um, then I, I like, I express this belief to you via testimony, right? And um, the minute you like hear the sentence that I say, God's like, right, I'm going to make it seem really obvious to Laura that this is the right belief, right? And He sort of like zaps you with an inclination to believe it, right? So I mean, in that case, it looks a bit like well, what we have here is not going to, at least not clearly, be a case of testimonially based belief, right? So you've been prompted to entertain a certain hypothesis by my speech, and then sort of using your own like reflective abilities or whatever, aided by like theistic intervention, you come to think, yeah, that seems right to me. Yeah. Um. So it seems like. We might think, so we only get testimonially based belief with these kinds of propositions where God doesn't give you the zapping treatment. But unlike in the case of moral testimony, it doesn't seem like it's your fault somehow if you don't get the zapping treatment, right? Like that's up to God whether he like zaps you or not with the inclination to believe the sentence. So there's a sense in which like somebody who fails to emotionally respond to certain moral propositions is somehow defective. They're like failing in a certain kind of way, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like there's the same blameworthiness for failing to have certain kind of certain kinds of doxastically significant emotional dispositions in the religious case, precisely because if you buy into certain kinds of theologies, right, they're not the sorts of things you could develop for yourself in any case. Sure. No, thank you. That's really interesting. Perhaps. Sure. Oh, thanks. So, um, I have similar concerns as Christina as to the scope, and you've already clarified that you think that perhaps this will only apply to a narrow, you know, range of religious knowledge. But um, I'm also curious to what extent this sort of defectiveness is unique to moral or religious knowledge. So, you could imagine this type of problem arising in other domains very easily. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's some romantics who write certain poetry or love letters and they think like, oh, people who don't really believe in love shouldn't be able to read these, you know, these writings because they just won't understand them and they might get the wrong idea even about love or something like that or really any domain, I think, where you have sort of expertise knowledge such that they they might write something in a certain way that would be misunderstood by, you know, amateurs. You yeah. might get this sort of... Um, Mis- in- inability to understand the writing, you know, arising, and then it starts to look like, well, there's nothing really distinctive about religious knowledge and moral knowledge here. This is just, you know, a, a, a rather common case of like some people not being able to understand things they haven't spent enough time, you know, being introduced to the concepts over time. Or I mean, I, I think that's right. Like, I, th- I think what's interesting about these cases is that once we sort of identify this phenomenon, like, you can sort of start to see it d- 
that like sort of more widely dispersed. I think it's just like it's sort of particularly salient or obvious in the moral and religious cases. Um, but I think it has like I think sort of paying attention to or attending to these cases has like really general lessons for the epistemology of testimony. So I do. I, I think you're exactly right, and I think that's partly what makes these cases like interesting and compelling is the fact that they're not these like arcane, really. So it's, what you have is like a really narrow piece of religious vocabulary that's susceptible to this treatment, but there are also like really narrow sections of lots of other vocabulary that might be susceptible to the treatment. Jeff has a follow-up. I just want to point out another kind of cool case um, that has some structural similarities that can be talked about. I, 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 this is partly what made me start thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Should I say that? Yeah. <laughs> So the one, one kind of puzzle is why mathematicians are reluctant to accept probabilistic proofs. Um, uh, because it looks like a probabilistic proof can, in fact, give you very, very strong evidence for something just as strong or stronger as, say, a very long uh, deductive proof might give you, because, of course, people make mistakes in deductive proofs, too. Um, and uh, Kenny's explanation of this is because mathematicians are interested you know, for at least you know, qua mathematicians, not just in knowing mathematical facts, uh, but also knowing them in a way that is not based on testimony in this way. And, and they want those, you know, those, the things that you write in the articles to have exactly the model you yeah. were just talking about, where they presented this proposition to you or this chain of deduction, and you don't believe it because they said so, but rather you, yeah. uh, you know, consider it and then say, ah, that seems right, and then and so on. That's an interesting. He also says something I think that's really interesting, which is he says um, that this notion of so this notion of transferability, right? So a proposition is transferable. Just if if I like say it to you by your own lights, you'll come to see that it's right. You don't need to trust me by authority. He says like maybe um, part of the reason people are so hostile to experimental philosophy is that we want sort of like philosophical propositions, like analyses of knowledge and so on, to be transferable in just this way. And if we had to rely on experimental results, the sorts of propositions that philosophers would have to importantly pay attention to in their theorizing would cease to have this property of transferability, which I think is like an interesting suggestion for why there might be certain kinds of misgivings about like certain adjustments to philosophical practice. So thanks. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, uh, thanks so much. I was, um, so I was trying to um, get a little bit clearer on the, what role exactly the, the emotional dispositions play in this picture and whether we really need to, whether it's really that they play a kind of a semantic role or whether they play a more epistemic role. I mean, so one thing you might think is that, um, you know, in order to, like, well, what is it to have, like, certain concepts or to be able to entertain mm -hmm. propositions? Well, roughly, it's to distinguish between kind of ways, oh, sorry, there's a super Stalinicarian, right? Like, ways the world might be, so one way from the world would be from, from like, the other, another way in which the world might, might be. And you might think that, um, like, the reason emotion, emotional dispositions are relevant in that context is precisely the same reason why kind of perceptual uh, phenomenology or abilities are relevant in kind of in other visual contexts. Mm -hmm. Namely, kind of they allow you to make certain fine-grained discriminations that if you did not have them, you would not be in a position in a position to make. So in that case, like someone who lacks um, kind of lacks the relevant emotional disposition might be. Um, Kind of might be unable to grasp certain propositions, but it's like the emotions 
you know, it's not, it's just kind of a contingent on our psychology that these emotional dispositions matter. Maybe there could be beings which kind of manage to divide the logical space in virtue of like some other cognitive abilities. Right? Yeah, I mean, that sounds right to me. Like, I certainly, like, I'm very, I definitely don't think that it's an important part of a kind of emotionist picture that emotions play any sort of semantic role okay. at all. I think it's very much an epistemic role that okay. we're playing. It's like allowing us to get in touch with a certain kind of like way that the world is arranged. Right. Um, and then I guess, I mean, you might think there's nothing special in the moral or uh, theological case either. I mean, if you screw with people's like prefrontal cortex, they like, they, you know, all kinds of, yeah. they, they're, they're unable to, to, to discriminate in all kinds of situations. Like they make really bad bets in situations in which they... Yeah, um, or like like, or like cases of slurs, right? Yeah. Where um, there are sort of, sort of, sort of like... Um, Structural tendencies to have certain kinds of affective responses to certain groups. Right. Um, yeah, and that's th those kinds of affective responses are kind of epistemically involved in us making these like discriminations, like sort of social. They're like involved in constituting our social ontologies. Yeah. Right. Okay. Great. Okay. Alison. Is it important to come to 
beliefs about God for a certain sort of reason. Um, so I don't know enough about the kind of literature on that to know whether that sort of thing might be something people are interested in. It doesn't seem absurd to me. So that there, there might be something along those lines that could be said about problems with religious testimony, although there might also be other things that kind that you've talked about. Um, so I think the question about whether it's plausible that we want religious belief to be formed in response to the right kinds of reasons is something that Laura's paper talks quite a lot about, right? And I do I think she makes a really good case for thinking it. There's also like good things we could say, like there's the old remark that there's a special place in hell reserved for those who believe in God on the basis of Pascal's wager, right? <laughs> um, that seems like a pretty sort of staunch defense of the idea that uh, not all religious belief is equal. Um, so as for the, so I mean, I spent quite a lot of time in the paper responding <coughs> to the idea that, um, uh, so I say, thirdly, Hills thinks both virtue and morally worthwhile action have a special connection to moral reasons. A virtuous person's motivations must be responsive to moral reasons. An action is morally worthy only if it is a right action performed for the right reasons. And um, I spent, a bit of time presenting my objections to it, which I don't know, I could go through now, but it seems like it might be better. Um, we can talk about it. Yeah. It? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Trench? <coughs> so my uh, comment was deals back to BC. Um, and uh, I think I just completely share your intuitions about all this. How could content possibly matter? And so when I ran across um, Passages like the ones that are in your um, paper, but from different sources, but but from medieval uh, theologians and such, saying the same thing. I, as when I was puzzling through that, one of the things that became apparent, at least in people I was working with, was that they meant something very rich by knowledge, um, something more like um, knowledge in a biblical sense, like union, and they had a heart that they didn't separate. Really, really between you know sort of propositional acceptance of, of doctrines and you know acceptance that this is true versus union with God and, and if you read them that way then you get um, a, a good explanation of why you might want to withhold um, uh, the teachings from the emotionally mature. So Pascal says that when considering the problem of divine hiddenness that uh, more information he says would help the help the head but hurt the heart. Um, because if they receive it, if they receive the gospel in a situation where they're disposed to reject it, then they can become confirmed in their rejection and not ever become a Christian and that would be a bad thing from this perspective. Um, so then it's, it's not only is it the case as Laura pointed out that these quotations focus uh, include the, the negativity of giving the doctrine. That becomes kind of the primary motivating force. This is this is a sort of way of being careful and, and a way of sort of care of the soul, you know. And as an example, I would just give that of uh, like a theodicy. I think that when you do, there are lots of people who morally object to getting theodicy. And it's not hard to see why, given the way that theodicies have sometimes been presented. Um, <clears throat> and so there's also, you know, a, a moral maturity criterion on giving theodicies. But even assuming that one. <clears throat> We're able to give a theodicy that was morally um, and, um, and emotionally mature. It's you know it's tough stuff. I and mean, if you gave it to somebody who was 
in sort of a, a dogged analytic mode and just not disposed to, to, you might just want to let them puzzle on their own for a while first before, Aristotle says, you know, not to even, um, first you train people up in their affections before you teach them all the end. Politics shouldn't be practiced by the young. So there's also sort of, sort of I just want to put a sort of developmental and care-based picture on the table. No, I mean, I think that all sounds like really plausible. Like, uh, I mean, it's more, presumably this is a phenomenon which could be explained in a whole bunch of ways, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like lots of different interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, certainly this idea that like encountering certain kinds of ideas when one is, when one's character is constituted in like a suboptimal way or whatever, might actually not just be like morally bad, but epistemically bad, because you're disposed to reject the propositions that you're introduced to. It seems like really plausible. Um, yeah, so that, it seems like a really neat suggestion of how you might go about explaining what's going on here. Typical. Yeah, I'm not sure I have a well-formed question. Um, maybe I yeah. <laughs> 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 Max, you're on point. <laughs> 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 That's kind of a point of me. Yeah, well, I've been working on it. I haven't, uh, didn't get that
testimony pessimism that you get from Paulina, we are asked to we are asked to consider cases in which we're stipulating that you know the source to be reliable about the domain subject matter in question, right? So I think that the maturity condition might fall out of that stipulation or that requirement of knowledge, right? So so if we think a little less schematically about the moral case first. Um, so there seems to be good cases of moral testimony, right? So um, so somebody say that I shouldn't say so or so about this ethnic minority. Somebody say I shouldn't yell at children. Somebody say I should donate to, you know, whatever it is that's, that's something about worms, you know, worm infection is very efficient in saving lives rather than, you know, the society of cats or right? So those to me seems like cases where I can meet the epistemic requirement. But those also seems to be cases of me in which I might be able to get more testimony. At least that's a lot less uncomfortable than cases where you have a moral paradox, right? You know, like a dynamic type thing. So if Sainte says uh, you should push the fat man in the trolley case, it seems uncomfortable for me to say that I get more knowledge by the testimony. And one reason why I, I suspect is that <coughs> even though it would so stipulated, given the fact that I have no access whatsoever what an argument here would even look like, you know, or even no grasp of why anybody could have conclusive reasons for thinking why I should push the fat man, right? It seems, it seems that I may not have the sort of appreciation for the domain in question to actually meet the epistemic requirement. And so I'm thinking if we transpose to the religious realm, right, it, it might be that it's just one where it's unclear that, uh, it's very unclear where the domain reliability will lie. Right. So for the testifier, and in, in particular, if you assume you're an agent who have no access whatsoever to the religious sphere, it, it's starting to look like what we're told to stipulate in the grounds for pessimism is something that we can stipulate only if we presuppose the majority. But then that's pretty much the Calvinist requirement, right? So, um, yeah, so how the hell do you get this down to a <laughs> question, right? Did that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, so the short suggestion is maybe the Calvinist requirements come out of, of the epistemic, uh, epistemic requirement in the, in the know that the source is reliable, right? You know that the source is reliable only if you have some appreciation of the domain in, in, in question. If you don't, you can't know the source is reliable, and then we're beyond pessimism because you don't even meet the conditions there, right? So yeah. that's, I think that's kind of the argument. So that, that's that's right, but it seems like a really important feature of testimonial knowledge that I can have. I, so you tell me that P 
I can get knowledge that P, even if I don't know you're reliable, right? Just if you are reliable, and we're sort of, have a sort of broad, like, reliability, safety kind of thing, then uh, I don't need to know that you're reliable in order to come to have knowledge um, that P on the basis of your yeah, testimony. Yeah, but, but wait, I mean, the, 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 the problem here that's supposed to motivate EC is that even if we stipulate that I know reliability is supposed to look uncomfortable, yeah. and, and, and my suggestion is, okay, we need to be more specific about the, the contents in question, because in more case, it seems cases where you can clearly meet this, well, that seems less problematic to me. I think I can know that I shouldn't say so-and-so about this minority, you, you know, uh, and possibly because I know that the testifier knows something about hurtful talk or, you know, um, have thought hard about this and is reliable, right? Whereas the more dilemma case doesn't look like it can meet the epistemic requirement and that might drive the intuitions, right? But now suggestions, all the religious testimony case are like the dilemma case, right? So, I mean... So, in, in that case... The Calvinism is not driven by by the Christmas institution. So, the, just to get a bit, can can I sort of try and clarify like the dialectic yes. of the question? <laughs> so, are you saying like, okay, Thanks. so here's this? <laughs> um, are you saying so here's this intuition, um, and there are presumably a whole bunch of ways we could try and explain it? And what you've done in this paper is you've presented one sort of story, but here I've got this idea of another story we could tell. Is that, and, and you're telling this story where you're saying, like, look, the thing that's driving the moral pessimist or the epistemic Calvinist intuitions is, uh, in fact, like a sense that the cases in which we know the sources to be reliable are, in fact, so scarce that they don't like figure in our kind of like intuitive sort of judgments. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. Let me think about that. Um, So we can shelf it and I can try to articulate it better and catch in the bar. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Is that the best point? That's cool. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit here and like stare yeah. at my paper. Let's do, let's do. I'll, I'll try to do better than that. Should be really boring yeah. for everyone. Pardon <laughs> me. Okay. Um, okay, John. Um, so, if you're going to have schematically an explanation of pessimistic intuitions via the emotivist inferential. Semantics. Just one little question, and then my main question. The little question was when I looked at the uh, the way the semantics goes as an entertainment to feeling transition that's required for understanding. I'm just wondering under what Boolean operations uh, you get entertaining. So if you know, P or Q does that kind of entertaining P, or it's not the case that P. Because when Prince writes these things down, he doesn't think about that yeah. kind of thing. But it seems like it might might, might be good yeah. because uh, so so that was the little thing. But the main thing is, it seemed like a good test case to look at people that satisfy the exit condition and see 
whether the pessimistic intuition survives. So suppose I am disposed to feel as negatively as you like about someone upon the, the view that they're terrible. And then just someone tells me, with, you know, out of the blue, oh, Max is terrible person. And then I, I start, I satisfy the exit, I start, you know, feeling all sorts of moral loathing. To <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it feels to me, I, I'm satisfying all the inferential semantics, but I'd have thought, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't, can't channel all of this, but I'd have thought the pessimistic intuition is fully in place there, but then it wouldn't be explained by um, a failure to satisfy the exit condition. You know? um, so you might want to say something like this, right? Which is that, so if you've got this disposition to feel all like these like really negative feelings towards Max, sorry, <laughs> like um, then, so once, so once, once my speech makes the proposition like relevantly sort of salient or whatever, it's kind of in the you sort of out there like in the room floating around, and you start like wondering, oh, is Max a terrible person? You've got all the relevant dispositions in place such that um, you don't trust, like you don't trust my testimony. No, the, the, the case is one where I just do, and I feel the bad feelings. I'm thinking. We have a pessimistic view of, of me, but I'm satisfying the exit condition. So the emotivist semantics can't explain why, why we have a pessimistic view of me. Okay. Um, yeah, so I guess what I sort of, I mean, I don't know whether this is like a, like a, a reasonable sort of strategy to pursue, but I guess what I'd want to do is like put pressure on the idea that the sort of story you're telling, um, once we kind of get in, once we start to start trying to pick apart, pick apart like sort of quite delicate stuff about belief forming methods or whatever, still hangs together as a plausible kind of story. And um, I, I don't know, I do. So um, a lot of work in the epistemology of testimony kind of like speaks in this very vague way about what it is to take someone's word for something. Um, and I don't think I've really read any account which like properly manages to give a, a sort of nice account of what's actually involved in adopting this kind of belief forming method. But hopefully, right, you could give some kind of nice story about like what sort of thing has to be going on in order for a belief to properly count as like the upshot of testimonial acceptance. And um, so the ideal thing to be able to do would be able to say like, okay, so once we've got this situation in place, um, we could tell some kind of story on which it looks like in the sort of like picture you're trying to sketch out, it starts to look less and less plausible. Like what we have in that sort of case is actually a case of testimonial acceptance. Obviously that's like me massively hedging my bets and whatnot. But I feel like at any rate, this kind of result, like when, on any kind of picture in epistemology, when we're talking about like um, belief forming methods as like a significant or important part um, of the sort of output of our epistemic theory, um, it's going to be like really important to have some kind of nice, sort of plausible account of what counts as testimonial acceptance. And I think that's kind of a gap at the moment in the literature. So I'm, I'm saying like, once that gap is filled, I will totally have a response to your objection, I guess, which is 
kind of cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we have time for uh, Trent. Uh, last question. No, I was just going to follow up on um, Max's suggestion in the last bullet point. Um, he says Rachel was looking for a, a king of us to make me better. That's compatible with knowledge, but such that the belief that exhibits it is somehow less than ideal. Do you accept that characterization of what you're looking for, um, Rachel? Oh, sorry, I completely, well, I, I just addressed it. The last sorry. point on Max's handout, um, the second sentence asserts something about what you're looking for. Uh, do you have that? Or Max, can you point that out? That seems to be kind. Yeah. <laughs> 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 just point it out the time. It says, What's that? It's just be kind. Oh. I was Thank you. Okay, let's thank uh, Rachel and Matt.